0: You're listening to the Cutbanks Conversation, a hunting, fishing, and conservation-based podcast here in beautiful British Columbia. Proudly sponsored by Spruce City Wildlife Association. All right, all right, all right, all right. In the words of Matthew
1: McConaughey, we are back. You can get get down off the table and stop playing air guitar. All
0: right. (laughs) Wow. New theme song, new year. I don't know if you could have a, do we have a new season? Can we call this season two?
1: Well, we could call it uh, COVID lockdown number three. Yeah, COVID lockdown Uh number three. (laughs) Good
0: name, good name. uh, So here we are. Uh, It's been a while. This is episode number 16, for those of you that are counting. Uh, It's been a while. We uh, recorded a little bit uh, back in December. Uh, We had a fairly long hiatus. There's been a whole bunch of things that have conspired to make us fail when it came to trying to record some content. But we have a great guest, uh, Dr. Robert Soroya, who's going to be with us here in just a few minutes. And we're going to talk a little bit about adaptive management and the role of science in wildlife management. But before we get to that, how's everybody been? How's the new year? What's going on, Mike? Let's start with you. The world of politics.
2: Uh, the world of politics. Yeah, we're still as um, as political as ever, <laughs> political as ever, and polarized as ever. You know that uh, we'll see how things progress as we move forward. Concentration's been on COVID as it should be. Yeah. But uh, there's a number of things that uh, need to be discussed sooner than later, and. And one is regarding forestry and the environment and biodiversity. Um, what does our economic recovery look like? Nobody's really put their handle on that. And yep. we have so many opportunities here in British Columbia to have one of the most diversified economies in, in Canada. Uh, we just have to put our mind to it. But uh, let's get through this COVID so we can start really rolling our sleeves up and getting to work here.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and if we just look at uh, in the U.S. is finally is finally resolved there. Their uh, don't their pu- national election. Don't, don't push it. But but <laughs> but I th- but I think part of it though that's interesting, and you can see it in early days. Uh, the Biden administration has gone with a very heavy focus on on green, green energy, um, a lot, uh, some more land that they're going to look at setting aside. He's looking for up to thirty percent of federal land in the U.S. Uh, the oil the oil business is probably not digging them too much. Uh, there's going to be some forestry licensees that will be probably a little frustrated in certain areas as he seeks to protect some some ground. But I think that shift south of the border will... That will cause some pollination in, in some of the ideology that, that comes up from that because it's going to force us to start to have conversations about, you know, fossil fuels and things like that. So I would expect... Uh if we ha- if the shift hasn't started, it's going to start at an accelerated rate as we, we start to take a look at environmental policy across the, uh, the for platform. S-
2: for sure, any political party that doesn't look in the environment as one of the key platform issues, uh, then they're they not going to win any kind of an election coming forward here in BC. So we, we have to do that. And forestry is going to change. Uh, oil and gas are going to be a part of our economy for decades yet because we... It's going to take us a long time to uh, wean ourselves off of that. Every product that we make is made from a petroleum product, right. wherever that we that we use. So uh, it'll be a long while yet. But uh, we have to put an eye to the green side.
0: Yeah, for sure, Stevie. What's been going on in your world, man? Uh, wild sheeping, fundraising. What else? Uh, Killing links. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve finally, after uh, some trial and error between him and Mark, Newdorf and I, we got out a whole bunch of times and him and Mark finally got it done here last week or the week would before? It, yeah, it would have been last week. Last week, oh. Steve oh. finally got a really nice good. link. So, uh, a good year for links. Yeah, uh, lots f- of tracks. Lots of tracks. Uh, we finally w- We were a little concerned there a little bit. Uh, and then as soon as the snow showed up, we got a little bit of a plummet yep. in the temperature. All of a sudden, the links started to get on the move. Weather-related, for sure. We're finally getting winter, right? Yeah, finally starting to get some winter and some snow. And and lots of, lots of people have uh, headed out looking for a new hunting opportunity. Um, but you know what was curious, and to me, very conspicuous? I can't speak for everybody else around the province, but I know for Steve and Mark and I, uh, and Mike's been out at his uh, trap line. The one thing we're not seeing lots of in, in around our immediate area is wolves. wolves we know stuff. that there's some out there, but we're not seeing the evidence like we did in the in the last two or three years. Way less tracks, uh, way less conversation about it, yeah. way fewer pictures of them on trap lines in a couple of areas for sure. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's definitely been some outcome from some of the in, concerted effort. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Been. What we are seeing is, is sign of moose. Like yeah, for sure. Tons and tons of uh, like not on the main roads, but once you get off. Uh, into the, uh, the little side areas, we're we're seeing embedded down in the middle of the road. And the good part is, is they're they're looking healthy. Yeah, like they're not ticked up or anything. we'll see what happens in a month. Pretty early for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. see what happens in a yeah. month. But they're they're overall, their their body condition looks good. Yep. So so something's happened.
0: Yeah, and we've uh, uh, and then we've seen lots of cow calf pairs and stuff, yeah. which is good, and some twin calves. Um, so for us, and th- remember, we're in uh, Region Seven A is is where this podcast is is recorded, um, and we spend a fair amount of time. Uh, between ourselves and some of the folks that we know out in the out in the woods. So we are definitely uh we're definitely seeing a little bit of a recovery
2: moose, which is a good story. Uh we'll pass that on to Rob. Yeah. Things are going good up yeah. here. Nowhere so. near where we need to be. Yeah. But, nowhere but oh, yeah. Some, something. We're yeah. so different. You know, we drove out my wife and I drove out to our remote cabin here last weekend and uh, all the way from here to Bear Lake on Highway 97 North, not one single moose track on really? the side of the road. Wow. And all the way in on the 200 road to where we park our truck, not one single moose track, and all the way into the cabin and all the way back to town, no moose tracks. Wow. Yeah, lots of Lynx tracks. Mm. And, and if
0: you just go a little bit beyond where you were, that's kind of where we started to see them. A little past the, the turnoff for of your cabin, probably five k yeah. up that road, all of a sudden it's like kaboom! They mm, kind of they, they sort yeah. of come out of the woods. It was nuts because
1: we'd be driving down looking for lynx tracks and go ungulate, 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 ungulate coyote, ungulate, ungulate. Oh, maybe that could be a lynx track. So yep. it was oh good, it, it it was was good to hear. Yeah, well, but, yeah, good. based on our own, I mean, just just, just based off.
0: on the last few the the last few winters about you know, for us out lynx and coyote hunting and not seeing anything, it was actually for us on the moose front. Um, uh, and I'm not a big moose hunter, but I mean, I, I always look at that as a, that's a bellwether for us for whether things are going well last year better, really, better or yeah, worse. Last yeah.
1: year when you and I were out half a dozen times, I, I think at least twice we saw packs of wolves, not just yeah. signs of them. It was, oh damn, there they are in the middle of the road. Mm. Couldn't get out in time, but we were seeing the dogs and now this year it's... Yeah, hardly any evidence of them, so. which is good.
0: Well, anyway, we are going to uh, shift gears here, and we are going to just take a pause so we can hear a little bit wait, from wait, our... Wait a,
1: wait a minute. What's that? How are you doing, Matt? Oh, I'm good.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, there. we can continue now. He's just the engineer. Yeah, yeah, he's just care. the producer. Okay, we can go to break. We don't really need him. We can go to break. Th- thanks for taking time out of your life, Matt, to be here with us. So. <laughs>
3: I'm more than happy to be here, guys. Uh,
0: but we're going to take a, a quick pause. We're going to hear a, a little bit of a word uh, from one of our sponsors, Mr. Omer, and the good folks at Precision Optics. And we'll be right back with the Cut Banks conversation. You know what I like almost as much as going hunting? hunting for gear and there's lots of places you can shop and there's lots of products you can choose from but one of my favorite places to consider when i'm in the market is with my friend omer down at precision optics in Quinnell, british columbia so he's got this great little uh, gun store tucked in the side of aroma foods he's an absolutely awesome awesome dude to talk to uh, so let's say uh, you are in the market market for, you know, one of the new uh, hot what's happening kind of rifles like the new Weatherby TI or the Savage Ultra light 110 with that uh, new proof barrel that they put on there. Or maybe like me, you're in the market for a backpack. I just picked up a new Stone Glacier 5900 R3 and uh, I got it from Omer. He's got lots of that stuff in stock. Um, maybe that goat or sheep hunt that's coming up, time to upgrade the optics and get a new rifle scope or spotting scope. So maybe you want Night Force or Swarovski or Leupold. Omer's got a little bit of everything. What, I'll tell you what he has a whole pile of other than great merchandise. He's got a lot of experience on mountaintops all around BC hunting for goats and sheeps and other critters and he has put all of the gear that he sells he puts uh to the test uh in mountain hunting scenarios every single year he's a kick-ass hunter a dynamite supporter of conservation initiatives wild sheep society absolutely loves them as do we because he puts his money where his mouth is and he puts money towards conservation supporting a number of events every single year so um, there are lots of great businesses all around BC. Omer just happens to be one of my favorite people to do business with in the outdoor space. So if you are looking for something in a, you know, rifle, in optics, in, uh, you know, gear, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're, you're you're thinking of, or if you just have questions, he's there to answer them all. So take advantage of a great facility with with somebody with a lot of great wisdom to apply and help you make a really really good decision. So. PrecisionOptics.net on the interweb. Tell Omer we sent you, and uh, he'll give you nothing but a lot of great advice. <laughs> All right, and we are back, and here we are with Dr. Rob Soroya. Rob, how's it going?
3: Oh, great. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to talk to you guys in Prince George.
0: Yeah, last and finally, yeah. we've we tried to do this just so everybody knows. We tried to do this three times and three times or three, two times. It has failed miserably because Matt and my with our uh, with our sickness and uh, just some of the COVID restrictions and stuff. So yeah, if we I'm finally COVID. got a chance to put it together. So, so, yay, it's all yeah. finally coming together. So, where are you, you guys? Have yeah.
3: snow up there finally?
0: Uh, we got some. It's
3: well, right. snowing right now.
0: Yeah. We, we don't have what we should,
1: but uh, we probably got a foot on the ground total.
0: Yeah. It's not much. Not much. A little bit more as you go a little bit north of town. It starts to get a little bit better. But uh, what about where you are? You're in Revelstoke? Yeah. And how's the snow yeah, packed down
3: uh, It's good up high for sure. Down in the valley, it's below normal, but up high, it's, it's above or better than normal yeah
0: so that's a good thing does yeah. that and is that good or bad for the work that you do
3: uh i like a bit more snow down low as well we're trying to catch deer right now north of town so um yeah it's been hard to get them in the in the net traps um just because there's a lot of food sticking out this winter there's a lot of greenery still so they're not going in the traps um my friend darted one yesterday so oh that's a good thing yeah that's good We've, yeah
0: okay well so what what i thought we would do is first let's get a little uh so everybody knows who you are and how you came to uh be dr rob ceruya uh let's talk a little bit about your uh your road uh to become um somebody that works in in wildlife science so let's talk a little bit about your educational background uh and where's home for you
3: oh yeah no i was born in montreal and i guess uh A lot of, uh, you know, like a lot of us, you know, the interest in nature predates uh, education. You know, it's just from being outside with your family. um, And uh, a big part of it, I think, was my next door neighbors. They were immigrants from Europe. They, you know, they came right after the war, Second World War. They were Russian-Polish couples. So they, you know, he fought heavily in the war um and they didn't have kids of their own so they took me out all the time they took me out shooting my first 22 and uh yeah into the forest um and uh probably the other big thing again independent of education was just watching the zebra mussels invade the great lakes and the saint lawrence so that was another big interest of mine where i used to snorkel um yeah, and then all this is actually really quick, you know. These teeny little mussels encrusted everything. Yeah, all the native bivalves and the crayfish, and yeah, it was a big transformation. So that's kind of what started to interest me in understanding how how the world changes.
0: So then, um, and, and, yeah. and that is that what? Uh, so through high school, and then is that what you sort of propelled you into a into a career in wildlife science?
3: Yeah, I didn't go straight to a university program. I actually went to. Um, uh, a college diploma type thing in wildlife tech tech you know to become like a tech right um like a technician to help out people um who were doing more advanced studies and um yeah that that further sparked my interest and then um uh yeah then i then I did the usual road, then I went to McGill did a, a bachelor's in uh Wildlife biology, then uh, went to UBC, did my master's on black bears in Banff. So all my field work was in Banff. I lived there, did a lot of this stuff on those highway overpasses. I was there before those overpasses got put in. So the work we were doing was helping to, you know, where those things should go. And uh, yeah, then I took 10 years off and um I liked working in the parks for sure they serve a role but that wasn't my main interest all the action is in the provincial land. Okay. You know, hunting, <laughs> yeah. uh forest harvesting, that's where the action is. The parks have a role but they didn't interest me personally enough cuz that's not where the levers can be pulled. Um yeah. so yeah, so then I worked for a forestry consulting company doing their wildlife piece. Um then uh, in early 2000 and then i worked uh then i started working for the research branch of the ministry of forests back then it was called um 23 two, for um for dr bruce McClellan, who was in the research branch that's when we still had a research branch we don't have one anymore but there was a formal research branch one of the oldest uh branches in the ministry um and it was an amazing outfit because they would do more work and publish more papers and do more, uh, useful work for BC than what would come out of the universities. Oh wow. They okay. were doing all the key, the government researchers were doing all the key stuff, partnering with academics and supervising grad students, but the, 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 the stuff was being pumped out of that branch. It was a really exciting time for sure. Then I did my, I started my PhD in 2008 at the U of A. And uh, yeah, we moved to Edmonton for a short time, but then came right back to Revelstoke to finish the field work and writing up. And yeah, I guess just to finish off, I mean, a big part of the foundation, I did not want to be, there's a huge role for academics and I work with them all the time. I'm an adjunct professor and all that stuff. But um, my mentors taught me to, you know, to be a biologist and, you know, you want to live out there, not on the concrete jungle, but live in the community, it, so, yeah.
0: Right, in the wild community where, where, where you're doing the work, right?
3: Pretty much. Places like Prince George, like Quinnell, like Revelstoke. I think that's where people, um, yeah, can really, really learn about the wildlife and interact with the people, with the run and gun clubs and such.
0: It's funny that you mentioned um, the, the difference between being in a working landscape like we have across the bulk of British Columbia versus being in a park. There's a quote I I heard uh, not that long ago from Ed Bangs when he was uh, referring to uh, Yellowstone Park, where he said, you know, 3,600 square miles of uh, of wonder and splendor, so surrounded by reality, um, because yeah. you know, it, and I I think that's kind of the thrust to where we're sort of going to we're going to get to is. You know, w- wildlife conceived in a in a in a pristine environment, where in in the case of a national park, where it's spectatorship, but the but the la- the land itself doesn't shift very often, right? Other than through natural or stochastic events, uh, but when you're scraping away trees and laying out pipelines and oil and roads and all of those other things, uh, there's consequences that happen. So. At what point? So, as you move through your academic career, at what point did you say? Is there was there a specific animal um, that that you said this is what I'm, I? I know you selected back black bears, uh, and I'm not sure if that was just happenstance. That would just happen to be when in, in front of you. When did when does the shift come? Because caribou, um, or at least caribou in their habitat and the things that pivot around that. Um, when did that become your focus?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I could be flippant in my answer and say, well, I like being on skis and <laughs> mountain caribou are in the big snow. So, um, you know, some, some guys have said, you know, you, you, know, you figure out what you want to do, where you want to live and how you want to, you know, be outside and then then the animal just kind of fits into that kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> so um it worked out well though. I love being on on backcountry skis and touring around and you know a lot of my field work was yeah stomping around in the winter on skis. Um so ca- uh, mountain caribou were the perfect fit for that. But <clears throat> I guess I'll be a little more honest and say again it was it was Bruce McClellan who was that researcher And in the early nineties, when he came on, you know, to be with government, he said, there's going to be two issues in British Columbia. It's grizzly bears and it's caribou. That's really what it, I mean, that's what dominates the news. That's what dominates the policy, uh, decisions. Um, you know, that's what, yeah, You, you have a lot of other things that, um, are in critical for hunters like elk management, sheep management, white tailed deer, for sure. Those are critical issues. Um, but when it comes to the big land management decisions, you don't see elk on the globe and mail all the time, but you see bears. Yeah. When the band came in, when the band doesn't, when the band went in and out, um, it's, yeah, it's grizzly bears that make the headlines. Um,
0: so just, just yeah. in that, um, is there, what do you think drives that bus? Because it, it's a point that we've made, um, you know, a few times on this podcast. Um, I, don't see, I don't see wildlife organizations. I mean, even right now, I, I kind of went through the, the, the who's who of the big ones. Wildlife Defense League, uh, Sierra Club, Rainco- Civic Wild, Rain Coast Alliance. Yeah. I took a look at all of their websites over the last few weeks. And I mean, yeah, first, there's some stuff on caribou. There's some stuff on grizzly bears. A couple of things on cougars and wolves. I didn't I mean and if moose if we use region 7A as uh has been topical for hunters um and first nations uh you know moose for us has seen a you know significant decline in in certain chunks of this area um but I didn't see a parade I didn't see an action plan I didn't see a protest um, about where we're at with moose and when we look at That's repre- right. but and we look at representative populations you've got depending on the model I suppose you've got somewhere around 150,000 moose in BC Um, maybe that's the issue but but you're dealing with caribou woodland and mountain caribou so uh, is that why because you've got 1500 mountain caribou but you've got about what 40,000-ish caribou between woodland and mountain is that about accurate for the whole province between both both species
3: yeah that sounds about right I uh I didn't skim the numbers for the northern groups um Did you say 40,000? That sounds a bit high. I think it's closer to 20,000. But regardless, yeah, the the caribou numbers in the southern half of the province aren't high. But the the bigger issue, this is, this is the whole thing in the nutshell is, um, no other critter on land, and I'm talking on land, not in the, in the freshwater lakes or in the ocean, but no other critter than caribou has the potential to conflict or constrain so much industry there's nothing else like it than caribou in in bc they live in the most valuable forest stands like the cedar hemlock forests in blue river and clearwater and revelstoke um, those timber stands are worth you know millions every few hectares right the trees are, are yeah. meters across so um and then the boreal type of woodland caribou where do they live they live right on top the second largest oil deposits in the world right like <laughs> yep. northeast bc and and uh, fort mcmurray and cold lake yeah right that's that we're talking billions of dollars that they sit on top of that's why caribou are in the news all the time grizzly bears it's more an ethics thing you know and large large megafauna getting hunted for sport so that's the other reason but for caribou it's Strictly because uh, it's a conflict between habitat and economy. And um there are some win wins, and we'll probably get into those. Like when you're doing wolf control, wolf wolf reductions, you have a win win for moose hunters and for caribou. Right. Okay. So those are the win wins. I'm sure we'll get into that later. But um
0: oh, we but will on yeah.
3: the habitat versus yeah, habitat versus economy versus oil and forestry. Boy, yeah, that's
0: well. We're yeah. gonna, we're, we're going to come back to that subject matter in just a couple minutes. But what I'd like to do is just um, if if you had to characterize the state of wildlife populations in BC from a fifty thousand foot level, if you took if you took the whole all, across all of our you know popular game species, um, and we'll leave we'll leave the non game species out of it right now. What would you say the the, the state of the union is uh, with wildlife populations in BC? Are we are we in a good position? Are we in, a, are we in a, a number of series of declines? Is there a lot of other uh, are areas or geographies of concern?
3: Yeah, it's species and area specific. It's hard to make a general statement, but if you include grizzly bears as a game species, there's plenty of those. There's piles of grizzly bears, there's piles of black bears. Black bears are still currently a game species uh you know cougar hunting is still good um wolf populations are strong in many areas so um yeah a lot of some predator populations are doing quite well Um, um um ungulate populations are varied but we know as you alluded to there's a broad scale decline in moose especially outside of the mountains Right. Um, so in the dry country, Kamloops, Vanderhoof, um, the, you know the caribou country, Caribou Chilcotin. Yeah, moose are not doing great. And kudos to the province, to the provincial government, for initiating that big moose research project with the five intensive study areas. I mean, what did they start that about six or seven six years ago. ago? There's been over two, yeah 260 moose collared, and it's a, it's a very well supported program um and again the wildlife branch and uh um yeah you know and again these issues transcend which political party is is in power right so it's just it's just that there's commitment by the politicians and by the bureaucratic staff and the senior biologists to to do their best um and and you know those those problems with the moose are being addressed do they have a solution not yet but they jumped on it when they saw the declines um do you, just on, yeah, do, you, do I, you think do you think
0: that they did jump on it i, I mean i'm putting i'm we're, we're jumping about three questions ahead, but do you think oh, that sorry. do you think that the the response to moose decline actually you know what hang on let's let's put a pin in that we're going to come back to that because <laughs> I, I that that's a broader conversation, and we'll have a chance to talk specifically about moose um in 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 a little bit um if we look at what I'd like to do is just, let's just talk a little bit about the idea of wildlife science. And, um, and I guess this feathers a little bit into what you're talking about, because, uh, the, the response that we have as a province has to be facilitated through policy, uh, and has to have people on the ground to do work, to do research and to determine where we're at. Like what are the things that are going well or what's going wrong? We have to study kind of the, we have to study the outcomes that are in front of us. So if we look at wildlife science, um, what are the key components of the work that is done that directly impact or inform policy? So, and what I mean by that, like, what are the, what are the primary mechanisms that, that people that are uh, either ecologists or biologists, what, what, what's their core responsibility? What's the burden that, that they bear when they come to work every day? What is the province asking them to do on their behalf?
3: So there's basic monitoring. Um, the basic, Monitoring of wildlife populations involves a whole variety of things. The gold standard is getting density, like numbers, like in that wildlife management unit, how many elk are there? How many moose are there? That's the gold standard. But we don't have that in the vast majority of the MUs across the province. We simply can't afford to do that. Um, and in the absence of that information of density or trend, you manage by ratios—bull-cow ratios, calf-cow ratios—and there are guidelines that the managers use. Um, so they're tasked with falling within these guidelines. For instance, just one example: you don't want your your uh, moose or your elk bull ratio to fall below thirty per hundred, thirty bulls per hundred cows. Right then it's supposed that okay, then you don't have enough bulls to to reproduce all the females, and uh yeah you get some wonky wonky things going on with reproduction and delayed implant you know de- delayed uh yeah delayed um yeah delayed partition the okay. next spring you get multiple um rounds of calving um so the there is the low hanging fruit that is actually um, monitored very well at a regional basis at a, on, on, at each management unit level. So those are ratios. That's the easy stuff. And um, that's well tracked with provincial harvest statistics and periodic uh, recruitment surveys. The, the more expensive stuff, like I say is density and that is the gold standard for, for common species, Do you need it everywhere all the time? No, you don't. You wish you had it all the time, but you have to prioritize and set up your surveys in a rotation. So maybe every eighth year you would census that management unit for moose. Okay. Um,
0: Does that give you enough time to react? Like if you're doing a census, and I mean, I understand because one of our, one of our, uh, (laughs) <laughs> one of our co-hosts michael schneider is is very fond of saying that moose don't need, need money, money right they don't need money they 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 need the money to be applied to something specific not just a pot of money to do something and one of the things that i you know the the, the more i i wade into this the one thing that we talk about a lot is is the lack of funding that goes into the wildlife portfolio and, and into the environmental portfolio in British Columbia. And it, you know, in in different jurisdictions in North America, there's, there's more of that money that's available to do those things. Um, sure. So if you looked at, but but there's a huge cost, I mean, just to collar like one caribou, we sponsored a caribou collar. It was 3,500 bucks for, for just to get the, for get the collar done. And then, you know, whether it's 500 or $700 a year for monitoring, um, I guess that gives you a data set, but I mean, for it to be effective and to be across a number of species, um, you're you're talking millions of dollars. If you wanted to do it, if you wanted to be robust and you wanted to be, uh, I I guess, closer to a a real accurate accounting, um, you need a lot of money. So my concern would be when there's a deficit in the funding that's available, and if we have to rotate our priority and say, okay, well, you know, there's only X amount of money and, and this happens to be the thing that's in front of us right now. So we'll, we'll census this population. And then in five years or four years or seven years later, we're going to get another number. Was there not a time somewhere on that timeline? Some that, that, that maybe there was something that happened. It's like now we're counting it, you know, after the a, after the, that watershed moment where things changed. How hard is it to sure. go back and fix that?
3: Oh, it becomes harder the more the population declines every year. We learn that with caribou for sure. Um, have your has your hunting club together with with the elected representatives of you folks? Do you ever talk about the Pittman Robertson Act in the U.S.
1: constantly? Um, constantly, yep, constantly.
3: Constantly, okay, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, would we like that model? Absolutely. I mean, we cannot compete with some of the research and monitoring that the U.S. agencies do. Yeah, they can put collars out all the time. Huge mule deer projects, right? Like they value their mule deer, you know, it, it, yeah. you know we, we can't compete with that. Um, and that kind of model, I don't see a downside on the management side. Um, it can only be an upside on the research and management for sure. the social cost i can't comment on. I am not a social scientist i don't know what the the social cost would be obviously it would be a, basically it's a tax right yeah um, and but, but do you think that yeah, that
0: but, so a funding model would fix that, but do you believe that in the absence of of that change in front of us what do you there's only Money can help produce um, mechanisms, right, that that help people make decisions. But you also, there's other things like political will, for instance, to do it. And if we're talking about caribou, as you alluded to, that's up against some, there's a social part of that element that sometimes doesn't make it a reality. Um, But if you looked at wildlife science in general, you would suggest that your primary role right now is, to at least have an understanding of what our population is at. In a perfect world, if you had money, and even if you don't, you do your best job to assess where we're at with herd health and however we do that. Those mechanisms would be, uh, like you said, monitoring bull ratios if you can't afford a robust inventory system. Um, You're gonna use modeling. um, Habitat assessment, would that be part of it?
3: Sure, and the habitat assessment is easy to do because we have satellite imagery that's updated all the time. And and people do that. They they use the imagery to track the change in forest cover and growth over time. Now you know. Now we have the stuff called um, the enhanced vegetation index, and that's like a continuous thing that you can monitor, so you know what your green flush is every year. Whether you're looking at Tweedsmuir versus the heart ranges versus you know the Anzac Valley, which is wetter than Tweedsmere, which burns more often. So that satellite imagery tells you kind of the bottom up food um process for, for these ungulates. And that's the kind of tool that I mean that doesn't you know, I'll give you an example. In a well funded system, they, but this is the gold standard. This is probably the best even in the US. Okay there is a model for mule deer hunting. After the fall hunt, all the hunting numbers go into the system, into the database, and then the computer program sucks out last fall's rainfall and that vegetation index. It sucks it in, plunks it into the computer, and crunches all the numbers that were hunted, crunches the rainfall because that fall rainfall is super high to predict mule deer recruitment, recruitment. the next uh, next spring yep and if it's a crummy fall that's dry and brown the model predicts a lower recruitment so it gives you a lower hunting harvest number for the next october so that is the state of the art like it, the model sucks it in automatically. It's like NASA, it's like a NASA thing, like and then boom out <laughs> plunks for each of your management units. Oh, you should hunt 42 bucks. You should hunt 62 bucks. You should, based on last, the previous falls hunt and the weather and the satellite, like you mentioned habitat, this is what I'm saying, habitat, that was your question. It sucks it all in like the real time habitat values from the X preceding month and it spits out what your hunt should be the next fall that's state of the art management are we there in bc no could but, we could we be uh, could we be money fixes Every. everything don <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: well uh i uh, that that's remarkable and is that, that that takes place in a couple of different there's there's a, probably a handful of states that use that technology don't they
3: yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, Mark Hebbelwhite's on that group of researchers, and uh, Mark Hurley. Yeah. Uh, all those guys. I mean, they have great students. Good, good universities that are in the bush, like U of M, University of Montana, like in Missoula. Um, you know, it's basically, you know, it's like UNBC. It's like yours. You, you know, you guys have leading researchers there. Um, that it's all backyard syndrome, NIMBY or not, you know, what's in your backyard, right? U of A has a lot of wildlife game students because you go out 20 minutes from Edmonton and you're hunting deer. Vancouver, not so much. The students study fish evolution and stickleback stuff, right? Like, because it's just not what's supported at UBC. You know, I mean, we're, we're increasingly urbanized as you know, and a lot of the research money goes to things that aren't, valued by um by natural resources it's more like um yeah more primary science type stuff but yeah you know um well it, i mean since you asked yes the <laughs> 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 hope i'm not getting too opinionated here yeah. well, i that's, love it i love you, it that's
2: what we wanted yep. you know one of one of the things yeah, i've right, noticed right. in listening to you, rob uh, is um you know we do a great job in this province on putting a value on fiber, on oil and gas, on minerals, we do a shitty job on putting a value on our biodiversity. You know, what's the protein value of a, of a mule deer or a moose worth, uh, or our fish or fowl, uh, our mushrooms, our blueberries and those kinds of things. And, and if we put that same value on it, maybe we'd have a level playing field where we'd start seeing research money coming in, uh, you know, as equal to forestry or oil and gas or anything else.
3: Oh, Mike, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. Um, And I think we could talk a lot about that. It's how do we value our wildlife, really? I mean, isn't British Columbia the the jurisdiction in North America with the richest biodiversity, you know, more than Washington, more than Oregon, more than Alberta? Yep. Yep. You know, we've got the mountains and the rain. I mean, you go literally, you drive half an hour, from the Okanagan to the Columbias, you've got rattlesnakes to 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 caribou and you know um weird lichens that grow on trees and stuff like yeah like yeah. the 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 gradient is incredible in this province, so yeah like i mean how, I don't know how what do you think about ways of expanding? Um, incorporating those values, do
2: you think? I I think it's imperative that we do, and sooner than later, you know, not only the extrinsic value that we see in you know in protein and all that other kind of things, but the the uh, the intrinsic value as well. You're just walking in there and, and a tourist looking at what we have to offer, wildlife viewing is a multi million dollar industry in BC but yet it's not really recognized They you know, they include it in tourism, but they don't include it in the value of our wildlife and biodiversity. So we need to bring in a holistic approach and look at biodiversity as the leading factor for resource development in British Columbia and uh, make sure that it's, it's equally um, regarded as everything else.
3: So- yeah. that I couldn't, I couldn't have said that's That's an amazing way to think about it really, Mike. And, Um, And wouldn't you agree that I think even, like you said, the intrinsic value beyond the economics, I think someone in Vancouver drinking a latte is happy knowing that there's a grizzly bear and a caribou out there, even though they'll never see one in their life. Mm -hmm. They're probably just happy.
0: But the one thing I think that gets missed in that, and and I, I think everybody is happy and we take those things for granted. And I was thinking about this the other day. You know, if I, it, it gets cold out up here in northern British Columbia and like it is, you know, it's, you know, a, a, a frosty bad, so minus 11 or whatever it is. <laughs> but you, but you, you, you turn your furnace up and the heat comes on. But you don't sit there and say, w- w- when I put that demand for heat on, or if I turn the, uh, the light switch on in, in my, in my house. I don't think about the consequences of what it took to put that infrastructure in, how that played out on the land base, you know, the amount of trees that were taken out, what the impact was to habitat, how many animals were affected. Did I disrupt migration patterns? If it was a big dam Uh, you know, how many fish were were affected by the the change in in the movement from, you know, from water or siltification. We don't think about, there's a, there's a, there 's a kind of a there 's a consequence in that calculus that nobody thinks about. We just care about you know is is it hotter um, in my house and do I have power when I need it, and can I you know get on and watch Netflix or television or listen to this podcast but we we don 't think about the things that go behind it, and I think similarly um, when th- there 's a proximity to a resource, so people like ourselves that live in a northern community. Because you hunt or whether you, if you're, even if you don't hunt, if you hike and you spend time in the back door, in the back country, there's a proximity to those resources. So you're interacting with them. You're out looking for them. And the other people, um, the idea of the wildlife is just like turning a switch on for them. It's like, I just need to know that it's there. Right. I did. Just like the power's got to be on when I turn the switch. Yeah. But the thing that people forget on on that wildlife equation is that there is a consequence. If I want to sit and if I want to have that latte in Vancouver and I want to read that book that's sitting there, that's made out of paper. That book is made out of paper and a tree was cut down to to, to make the book. And the cup. And the cup. And there's a consequence to that. There's a consequence that, that gets visited out on the land base and I'm not sure that we always factor that in and then when I guess what we struggle with you know living right in like right in, that's right in our backyard it's it's all how a lot of us have to make our living is we're in front of those decisions all the time right um, and when people make judgments about how those things are managed or if they're managed or why they're managed, when people that don't have the same proximity to the resource, we tend to get our hackles up a little bit about, hey, listen, like, you know, we need to make some of those. We, we have to live with this. This is our reality. And, I mean, there, on, there's on two sides. One, on the industry side, we have people that work in pipelines and work in forestry, and, you know, they build those transmission lines. So, so they're employed by that. But we also have the same people that are building those things also, are looking to fish in those rivers and hunt in those valleys and and, and and be on those mountaintops, whether it's hunting, fishing, snowmobiling, hiking, whatever. So our proximity and interaction, we're on both sides of the scale. So the, the consideration of the impacts that go in there are right in our face every day. And sometimes when things like the grizzly bear hunt, for for, for instance, we understand it, but we live with grizzly bears and they don't. We also live on the land base that they, that they don't necessarily do that. We usually take umbrage, though, when somebody has a... A socially based opinion on that that doesn't have anything to do with how they then re- rather than just how they feel about it, not because what they know, not because of what they've experienced, just on on how they feel on something that they will never have an interaction. But, but with. the thing
1: is, is, they're generally told to feel that way, right by the by the media and these anti hunting groups and all those other ones that are coming out and going. Did you know that grizzly bears are endangered? Well, hell no, they're Hope- not. But they are but, when they're told to when they're it. told but that's the thing that' and that's that, what's going so on so when
0: then. we when I you know if I look at you know Rob as, as somebody that's working in wildlife science you're asked to apply scientific rigor right to study outcomes and to study the reality and just and and then based on that we inform and make policy around that right and then when we when we get the results the policy will say for instance that Maybe maybe wolves need to be managed in this case, and we're, we'll get to that in a little bit, the specific application. But there's policy that gets made that's born out of the results of actual applied science. And then as a society, we struggle with whether we can live with that, even though science says this is what you need to do. You might not like all of it, but this is how you get a sustainable result, right? Uh, so I, I've always found that, that it's curious. And the reason I bring it up is that we talk about you know, what it is that we have to do um, in the scientific community and what what that burden is that you guys bear every day to study the wildlife to make recommendations. Is it frustrating to say, here's where we're at with caribou, here's the things that you got to do, this is how you get your moose, your deer, your cougar, whatever, and then to have government turn around and go, yeah, thanks, Rob, we're totally not doing that?
3: (laughs) Um. It's easy for me to sit back and, and criticize policymakers and, and decision makers. Um, but it, probably in the phase of the mid 2000s in BC, despite all the science coming down the pipe, all the papers that were published, I didn't think in my career I would see wolf management for caribou in this province. I saw it in Alberta. It started with Ernest in about 2005. Um, I actually, I really didn't think I would see it. It took time. It takes time even in the scientific realm. Um, and I think it came, sure, it took about 10, 15 years to be implemented. Um, it started in earnest in about 2014 in the peace country, right? In peace, in the, in the peace area, um, and I think a lot of things contributed to that. Number one w- was the science. The other piece was people started buying into it because there was some habitat protection um, that began in the mid-1990s with the land use planning process and really ramped up in earnest in 2007. So there was a lot of habitat protected from Prince George down to the U.S. border for that southern group of mountain caribou. And yeah, I mean, yes, like I said, it's easy to say, oh boy, it takes a lot of time, but it did end up happening. And about half a dozen herds are increasing now.
2: It took a lot of, Um, I I was part of the um, cabinet committee on environment and land use. And that was a big discussion for us in 2013, 2014. And there was myself and one other um, um, minister that uh, were adamant that we bring in our wolf control program and a number of other programs uh to control uh the carnivores out there and we were successful. It it was it was a real struggle, but we were successful and I'm glad to see it still rolling along.
3: Well it's always tenuous. There's a lawsuit right now that's that's shut it suspended it this winter. Um a loophole uh in an act that I'm not aware of, but it was through Transport Canada. Um but yeah Mike that's for sure I I could tell from the outside, I could tell the struggles that were going on. And and, and another kudos, again, you know, when when the BC Liberals were in power um, in around 2006, 2007 was the extra wave of habitat protection that came into play um, during that time frame. So um, it's about... 2.2 2.2 million hectares of habitat protection. However, a lot of that is rock and ice. So about 20% was the THLB, but that did come about that peaked in 07 during, you know, the liberal land use planning process, but it also gained steam in the mid 1990s when the NDP were in power. So like I say, it transcends parties, but, um, each party has made some significant strides. Uh, to this piece, yeah, well, is it enough?
0: Probably not. But and it, it's not. I don't think the environment is uniquely. It's not a partisan. It's a bipartisan issue. If we're going to have two parties, but it's a. It should. It should transcend the idea of what your party affiliation is. But you're you're right. Some people will want to carry the football, and some people won't. Right. I mean, I guess with <laughs> some people will be okay with just getting the first down, and uh, some people would rather punt the ball when it comes to environmental policy. So. Um, if we look at, uh, did you have something you want to add, Steve? Okay. If we look at, and
3: other, just to finish off, uh, other things, though, happen much faster. Some of our inventories, okay, Revelstoke is spoiled. We have a moose census almost every year because it was the original pilot on this moose stabilization piece. And that bit of science how many wolves are out there, how many moose from our inventory that gets rolled into immediately into the policy. So, some major shifts are slow but like mike pointed out when you have the major major battle lines it happens like in 2013 like like when mike said but other pieces actually i'm quite impressed with how fast some pieces happen i have to say you know it's if you look at
0: but if 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 the if we're looking at gold standards do you see other do you see other provinces or other states that act quicker to enact policy i'm
3: on a I'm on a federal adaptive management committee, so the feds have hired me to compile um, and lead a a group with two or three reps from each province on the caribou piece, and we talk about moose all the time, and BC and Alberta are seen as the leaders, um, for sure. Ontario studies caribou a lot. They really ramped it up in the last few years. BC started way before. BC started in the 80s. Um, and they have some great studies coming out, but they have zero happening on the population front, on the management front of caribou. Um, they're tweaking their forest harvesting a little bit, but they have their southern herds are declining, and they're not doing anything on the population management front. So BC has tried more things than even Alberta than any other province. We've got the maternity penning, the feeding, the caribou feeding experiment, the Doug herd from Prince George has right. led. Um, you guys should get him on the show, by the way. I talked to him today. <laughs> he knows <laughs> way more than me. He's retired. Yeah, we um, know him. Mike might know him. I don't know. Yeah, um, we, yeah, we, know we, him. Him. yeah. we know him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and the feeding trial has had some positive benefits. Like, BC has performed more different kinds of management experiments than any other province.
0: So, when we look at, okay, so we, we, we have science that's going on the ground, right, and we've tried things um are there are there social th- th- we, we've we talked about this but the the weight of a social or a political impediment versus the science that's in front of it i mean w- when you guys are working it's enormous it's enormous but when you like how do you work through that so uh, how do you get to the other side of it how is it that you present that and say listen i i understand maybe you don't have an appetite you guys understand why we want to you know whether it's kill wolves or or what it is that we need to do right or we we're going to put a polygon around this area and say you can't cut trees here um how how do you how, how do you keep your resolve and and mm-hmm. how, how do you stay the course from the scientific side without wanting to just kind of pack your bags and say you know I just give up just just tell me what you want this thing to say cuz i i would imagine i mean after all of the years that you've been doing this there has to be some moments of frustration in your career when you're like, why do you people not get this? Like, why are we not acting on this?
3: <laughs> oh, f- for sure. I mean, we, we don't have the tools to have open debates, but shows like this will do that. The podcasts like this will totally get in there. And um, not everybody is going to agree with what you or I say. You or I might not even agree. and that's. But that's part of a healthy democracy. I'll, I'll, yeah, no, you, but to answer your question, you just have to re- remain an optimist. And, um, <laughs> or else you would, if you wouldn't be in this game of caribou, if you were, um, easily swayed or had thin skin, you know, you wouldn't be in the game. But you, in your question, you also alluded to social costs. The biggest example and the original thinking around that term adaptive management was with ocean fisheries. The, the recruitment curve starts to level off. But the big debate is, okay, is it climate or is it fishing that's, causing that leveling off. Changing ocean climates. The only way you'll know that is by greatly reducing your take of your fish and then seeing if that recruitment curve still goes up or starts to level off and go down. That's called doing an adaptive management experiment. But what's the social cost in the meantime? You're putting a bunch of fishers out of work or reducing their catch enormously to do that trial because you might get three times as much recruitment down the road if you do cut back for five years. But in the meantime, you're putting people out of work. But you might end up with 30% more and you'll always be higher on that sustainability curve when you put the fishermen back to work. So it's getting over that social risk and the experiment might not work.
0: Yeah, That
3: is the original...
0: But the Sorry? but but I think even by that example, the cod fishery on the east coast, I mean there was oh. there were, you had fishermen, you know, <laughs> small vessel fishermen.
3: 30,000 30, out of work from one week to the next in nineteen ninety
0: one. But all the way along leading up to that, for for years you had generations of, of local fishermen, not big commercial fishermen, but said, Listen, we can't this we we can't keep doing this. Like we gotta pump the brakes. I mean, you had people who were in the industry saying, "Hey, I don't know if you guys know, but this is going to end badly." And then when it ended, it yeah. ended it ended catastrophically. So, I mean, in that case, you've got a social cost um, whether you did it or you didn't do it, right? So, in, it it still played out, but it probably teaches us a valuable lesson. Um, I just i the the reason I, I bring that particular one up is if we look at caribou and we if we look at caribou and salmon in British Columbia, you know, it's like you're on a, so you've got this federal group, and, and you're talking about adaptive management. There's over, federal oversight on caribou as a protected species, yet we've seen th- – there, there's documents that go back 30 years saying caribou are in trouble. And it's like, yeah, so yeah. When, when are we yeah. going to do something? Hey, just so you know, caribou were in trouble in 1989. They're in trouble in 1999. They're in trouble in 2009. They're now they're they're really in trouble. And salmon, we've been watching salmon at an alarming rate. Again, another one that has federal oversight. Um, we've got we've got entire stocks that don't exist anymore. You know, you've got you've got like millions of sockeye that are missing. You've got chinook that are completely wiped out in, yeah. in terms of their their functional run in in some streams. And it's like, I'm pretty sure there's been some pretty good published work. Some peer reviewed science. It's something, but somebody has said, "Hey, listen, I did the work. This is not going to work. We got to change, and nothing changed. And all, now all we're doing is witnessing the decline." What I, the reason I throw that up there, Rob, is you're on the science side, and I've got to. That's why I keep coming back to that. Is there not a moment where you, where, where people say, "Okay, like, what is it going to take?" Because. Caribou almost being extinct. We should never... Why is it brinksmanship? Like, why do we have to wait till they're almost gone before we go... It, it reminds me of market hunting. You know, thank God somebody said, geez, I think that's the last buffalo, right? We probably, we probably yeah, better stop, yeah. right? That's what it feels well, like we're doing.
3: With COD, yeah. I mean, the government should have buying back the boating licenses for five years leading up to the crash. There, There was... Some uncertain science, but the the policymakers would always choose the lowest value on that confidence interval right so they'd uh, I'm sorry, they'd always choose the, the highest estimate yep. sorry they'd always choose the highest estimate instead of choosing the lowest risk. They did that year after year after year, but they should have been buying back the boats i mean capitalism works very well to a certain extent and then a teeny bit of socialism should have kicked in there and the government should have brought back the boats and 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 put those folks to different work whatever it may be but get them off the water because that created the pit that they're in now um and it's still there 30 years later so when it comes to caribou um well we kind of touched on it earlier i mean there is a conflict with with jobs and caribou i admit that it's hard to get around that when you have forest dependent economies however there are millions to be made in caribou habitat restoration there is you know there is a, you know frbc back in the 90s used to retrain people and shift them from this sector of the forest industry to that sector of the forest industry um you know those are tools at our disposal to to restore to restore the roads to restore the seismic lines. There are three hundred and fifty thousand linear kilometers of seismic lines in northeast BC and in Alberta. So there's a lot of work to be done to restore the seismic lines, and it's basically a shift in a, a shift in the economy. And there's no easy answer. But um, yeah, I mean, if the if the federal government is committed to protecting caribou, um, the system, the economic system, has to be put in place. Whether it's um, uh, you know one cent a liter from from gas going to caribou and polar bears, or you know everything that's related to climate change, whether it's a Pittman Robertson type act that shifts money over, but um, yeah, it's. Well, like Mike was saying, we, if we want to value our wildlife, then we have to, unfortunately, assign a cost to it. And if it's a certain cream um, on on carbon, let's say, that can be used to restore the habitat that went to extracting the carbon, you know what I mean? Yep. Seismic lines were used to find carbon, to find oil. Um, Three hundred fifty thousand kilometers just in caribou habitat.
0: So if we look so at those are those. Well, so you there, there's there's certainly an, uh, there's always going to be a, a cost wh- whenever we want to whenever we want to make a shift, and it's a paradigm shift for everybody to to move to move away from to migrate from an industry. I mean, I you know I work in a car dealership, you know, and we're we're you know the manufacturer that I work for is going through a big electrification, and not not just a little not not just toying around with the idea. It's a massive change for one of the largest auto manufacturers in the world that they and they they're galloping ahead with it. So, I mean, if they're making electric cars, then there's going to have to be electricity to to make those cars work, right? So, there's going to be a big change. If there's a big change going, uh, pardon me, we were just talked before we got on with you, um, you know, about the shift in 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 environmental policy in the United States. That's going to gallop at a really quick rate. And as we, yeah, make-
3: if, if if Biden keeps up and delivers on those policies, there there will be some shifts that were far greater than under Obama. And, you know, whether it's a good thing or bad thing that, that Keystone gets canceled, I don't know. But certainly it's it's signaling a big shift. And when you look at an oil-dependent nation like Norway, like it is based on oil. I lived in Norway two years ago because of uh, reindeer work, you know, caribou. I went there for that reason. And um, they are now, believe it or not, at 51% of every new car sold is electric.
0: Wow. Well and but and we're going to move towards that. But then that will create new realities because electri- because electricity doesn't come without an environmental cost either, right? So we'll Oh make-
3: yeah, you've got site C in your backyard, right? Like
0: Yeah. So there, there there'll be yeah. a tra- there'll be a transition, but um, all along the way whatever our transition is, there'll be an industry that gets wrapped around it and that industry will have some level of disturbance that's going to play out somewhere on a land base, right? Um and that's going to displace animals or impact wildlife and and as we urbanize more the the bigger the sprawl gets the more the roads get if you want to twin highways there's always a consequence so we're always going to yeah, be visiting that's,
3: that's so you alluded to this earlier as well like there there are industries people turn on the thermostat that oil has to come from somewhere that natural gas has to come from somewhere one solution, again, it's not the silver, you know, it's not the magic bullet, it's not the panacea. But one solution is zonation. So you you designate some areas to go hard on industrial extraction, um, some areas you go hard on wood removal, and you basically say we're not going to worry as much about wildlife there. Maybe that area is less important for biodiversity. But then in the mountains where there's a productive old growth forest, we'll conserve those to a greater degree. One of my favorite cost benefit analyses and life is about cost benefits. Everything we think about, like you said, every decision we make, you know, whether you go buy the new boat or put it for your retirement savings, that's the cost benefit analysis. Right. And um, it's uh, it was analysis done in Alberta where you could write off the southern caribou herds, like Cold Lake, Eastside Athabasca River, the southern ones, just south of Fort McMurray, it's still northern Alberta, but it's the southern group, just go to town for oil extraction. Just do it. Just go and no longer spend millions on caribou management down there. But the northern herds, like Richardson and Red Earth, completely stop resource extraction. And That would increase the persistence of caribou in Alberta as a whole, increase the probability of persistence at a cost of 2% of the oil revenues. 2%, which is still billions. We're talking reducing, you know, when you say don't go build seismic lines and well pads in red earth Richardson, you know, you're still losing oil revenues. It's 2%, but you up the oil extraction down south. That's called zonation. And we do, we can do that with forestry to a much greater, we do it a little bit. um, And the forest practices code alluded to it. And then, you know, FERPA and all that, it alludes to it, to a a small degree, but zonation, of course, no one's buying into it because it's a, it's a risky road for, for, for a political party to take. Oh, we're going to zone because it's a big leap of faith for the public to understand. Oh, we're going to write off those herds. Are you kidding me? But basically, that's what it is. You go hard on resource extraction over here, and then go much lighter on resource, or you eliminate resource extraction over there and and value your elk, moose, and caribou. Well, I bet you've got some people sweating right now. Well,
2: and the, the big question behind that is uh, where are you going to do this? What zone are you going to do? So uh, with when it comes to forestry in British Columbia, are we going to turn the Amanika region into that forestry zone and not worry about wildlife habitat or any of the other biodiversity values over my dead body? And I'm sure that we'll yeah. have people down in the Kamloops area saying the same thing about that. So yes. that that is where the debate is going to happen for sure.
0: Yeah, on, uh, yeah, on what land? But I mean, I guess that I guess. But to your to the broader point for you, is that there are ways to facilitate both sides of that argument because there's there's always you know I I teach salespeople when you're negotiating you you need to work with a customer and somewhere between what they want and what you want there's this magical thing called the car deal right and 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 there has to be compromises. There's always going to be because you can't have there there's 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 value for wildlife there's value for the commerce that we need to do otherwise we can't move forward right but there we sometimes forget that there's 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 a middle ground that we should be trying to champion you know and we just we look at short term solutions we don't have long term thinking so it's interesting to see that um that there's science- and you're saying that there's even a there's a science there's a, there's a, not just the spirit of there's an application of science to get there whether it's through zonification or you know what we do with some of these seismic corridors that we've created by backfilling them in road planting you know habitat rehabilitation um, you know changing our our rotation cycles that we have in forestry there's lots of options that are in front of us we're just not choosing necessarily the best ones we're choosing easy ones but we're not choosing necessarily the best ones if. We go back to what you said, Mike, and what you had said earlier, Rob. If wildlife is, in fact, a real value for us, whether you live in Vancouver or you live in Fort, J- Fort St. John or in Terrace or in Prince George, if wildlife is a real value for you, that you'll find a balance that gets you not just a rep- you, we, we, I, I think we can all agree British Columbians want... They don't want animals in a zoo, right? That's not how you want to know caribou. You want to know caribou in, in the habitat that they're in. You want, to know, you want to know that moose are on a landscape that looks somewhat like you would, would imagine it. Um, otherwise, I mean, I guess there would be a simple solution. The real cost of saving it, I mean, one of the things that we joked about with salmon was the best thing that can happen with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans is if all the Chinook are gone, you got nothing left to worry You're about, right? Manage, yeah. You just worked yourself out <laughs> yeah. of the job, brother, right? You get early <clears throat> retirement, no more salmon. We don't have to worry about it. Um, <clears throat> There's a, just in the spirit of that, there was a quote that I heard that talked about, and you and I talked about this on the phone briefly, and I want to get your thoughts on it. Um, I heard an observation from Steve Rinell. He was talking about two different perspectives in in wildlife uh, when we look at wildlife management. And he was talking about, the difference between Alaska, which I think models very closely to what we have in British Columbia, between the, the scale and the scope of the, of the fish and wildlife species and some of the, the industry that plays out, et cetera. But he was talking about what, 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 what it's like there, because he has a brother in Alaska and he's got a brother in, the, in, the, in Montana. And I think the contrasting perspectives were in the lower 48, the language around wildlife management for a long time has been focused on the word recovery, right? And the language that's applied in, in, the, in Alaska is around management. So one implies you don't have it and you're trying to restore it. One implies that you do have it and you're just trying to not let it decline. And those are two really different ways to approach it. Now, I know we, uh, you, you can't probably apply it broadly, but do you think that we've got more recovery work or we have more management work to do? If we look across the species in, in British Columbia, if we look at just game species, we have more recovery work?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think Renella makes a good point, and he's really stretched out the you know pristine Alaska. He's the meat eater guy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Off, yeah. No, he's 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 quite the philosophical hunter. That guy. <laughs> yeah, he's um, and and is a good cook. It looks like. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think we can we can talk in similar terms about that gradient for sure. Like in the south where we have fewer people, less industry, less landscape change, less yeah, I mean, sorry, in the in the north where we have few, fewer people, less industry, less pavement, less landscape change. Yeah, it's it's more of a naturally regulated system that you can manage um for an optimal sustained whatever your your target is. And in the south, you're you're dealing with remnants of some species for sure um so i think there's a degree of truth to what he said however doug Hurd reminded me today that um yeah val geist and and others have an, an opinion that in modern times with modern hunting like we haven't lost any species in the last 80 years because of hunting sure we're dealing with the legacy of overhunting in Southern caribou population, like in addition to habitat loss and predators, a big part of the caribou problem is we shot a lot of them, the early settlers, for sure. We're dealing with the legacy of that, but um, contemporary hunting management in the last 50 years, um, it's, it's, it's not terrible in that sense. Like they, again, the agencies do a good job. So it's not all crisis management. Yes, I agree we have populations of elk and mule deer and moose that are, that have declined over the last 30 years for sure. Um, But that's probably, yeah, that's probably more a function of landscape change than the traditional hunting management. But to answer you, that still probably falls into the recovery category. I mean, yeah, it's harder and there are fewer elk per hectare, in the trench now than there were and then compared to the Muskoka now.
0: Right. So there yeah, the, for sure. So there I mean I would so we could make an argument that we're looking at recovery on some because we wouldn't be if we flip that to bears, we're not talking about recovery of grizzly bears. You got a quarter of the the, the grizzly bears of North America live in BC, right? You don't have a black bear problem. Um you have a decline you No, know,
3: there are some areas where they're still considering reintroducing grizzly bears and people you know, like to see them coming back in the Cascades, and you know, Standard you know, bird. recovering some areas. But yeah, most areas, um, yeah, exactly. The grizzly bears are are doing well, with some exceptions for sure. But overall, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I always thought it was an interesting distinction because we have spent, and you know, I, I think that, that that statement probably is true if we look at you know over maybe the last fifty years. You know, because there were still some, you know, you're recovering wild turkey populations and there was a great effort to require, you know, white-tailed deer populations around North America. Um, but a lot of that's still coming out of market hunting. But in, but in in the last 50 years, we probably have had, we have more crises in front of us right now, more as a function of what's happened with land disturbance than anything else. It's it's habitat competition that we're we're dealing with, right? More often than not.
3: Yeah. Yeah, land disturbance, and you know we're learning more about hotter summers and hotter falls. Falls that, you know, I hate to invoke the climate change world because it. I hate to invoke it because it means oh, we just throw our, up our our arms in the air because there's nothing that the local manager, there's nothing that Mike Clavick can do about climate change. There's nothing that, um, you know, the manager in Nelson or Smithers or Fort Saint John can can do about. A drier fall that's producing less food um, other than adjust their harvest <laughs> down, downward, right, but they can't mitigate that effect um but yeah, there's land disturbance, and um there's some evidence that this summer fall food quality, not necessarily quantity but quality, is changing when it gets dry, okay. and like I said, with that mule deer piece in in the in the u s In the northwest um it's that fall rainfall in late summer fall that creates that last green flush for them to put on weight before winter and store that body weight through the winter like a battery and if those fall events become less frequent because of a drier climate and you know you're seeing all the fires in california and washington state if that becomes less frequent, then yeah, that's going to impact your wildlife populations. So it's this combination of land use, which we can control to a certain extent, and then this global thing, which we can't control at a local level. Right.
0: So one of what I'd like to do is um, I, I want to get into the specific application. When, when I when I saw you speak um, for BC Wildlife Federation, um, you presented your findings and. The reason I want to bring it up, we had touched on the increase in the in the cow calf or the cow calf yeah. allocation, and there was a ton of vitriol online, and we had lots of people that were upset about it, and myself included. And then I heard you speak, and then on the other side of your presentation, I went, ah, I never, I didn't understand that maybe the the way I the, the way it was intended, and I was one of those guys that was uh, yakking about we need more science and better science, and then. Uh, you had a very scientific application, in, in and in a, what I reacted to was, I saw people killing in in my own version of it. I saw people killing cows and calves, and I was like, "Oh, that's counterintuitive." And we got a moose problem, and what really was going on is we have a localized moose problem that had another problem that they were all intertwined, and it was a co- it was a very complex explanation. And I re- th- that's when the, I, the the light really went on for me, Rob, when I saw your presentation. I'm like this is not as simple as kill a wolf and get a moose right it's not an input equals a, a, a the opposite output right it's like i kill a wolf and i get a moose back it wasn't it wasn't just that it was in the absence of being able to do a whole bunch of things like when i was reading through the adaptive management paper i started to to go okay th- you you can't just go and put a bunch of 80 year old trees back on the landscape to fix things and i can't put lichen back you know tomorrow let's just go roll out some lichen and it'll all be better tomorrow right I have to do something in in the interim, but I didn't understand that the there's a dynamic relationship between predator predator and prey that isn't as cut and dried as I wanted it to be. So can we just kind of let's take a look about at that study area because it becomes, um, it it becomes sort of the there's a control group and then there's the area of application. Where you where you were using adaptive uh adaptive management, so can we talk about that and the dreaded here it is everyone primary prey reduction was part PPR. of this yeah
3: primary prey reduction yeah and i'm sorry <laughs> i um <laughs> no it's it's so do you want me to talk about Parsonage Prince George as well as Revelstoke? Sure, if you could or, just, it, it just
0: yeah, let just just to give, I'd like I'd like the people listening just to get an idea of the presentation if they haven't heard it. Um, obviously, we're not doing a slideshow or anything, but I just if you could just kind of give them the the, the the key components of it, so they know how the study was conducted and why why it was that those cow calf uh, numbers were issued or why those LEHs were issued and what the intent was yeah. and what the science was generally behind it.
3: For sure. So the idea was, particularly in Revelstoke, moose numbers were very, very high. There was 1.5 per square kilometer. There were almost 2,000 moose in that system. Super high densities, among the highest ever recorded in BC uh, and in Canada, except for Newfoundland. Um, And it was the, as Brian Glacar, the guide outfitter here in town, reminded me, during that presentation, it was the local Rod and Gun Club who first approached government and said, "Hey, we got a lot of moose. Um, some people were saying something's out of whack. There's more grizzly bear tags than moose tags in the, in the early '90s, <laughs> <laughs> and so the moose population was climbing really quickly. There were few wolves at that time in the mid- to, in the mid-1990s, and they peaked in 2003. And we started getting more and more science on this business about landscape change, logging yields more moose, which brings in more wolves, more wolves than historic numbers, and more moose than what the natural forest used to, used to sustain. And more moose and more wolves meant fewer caribou. So at that time, back in the early 2000s, there was not a political climate to reduce wolves. So moose became a lever of option. That was the option. As well, the foresters, the government and the industry said, there's too many moose, they're destroying our cedar plantation. The Rod and Gun Club said, let us harvest more moose. So it was kind of this universal agreed upon thing. We'll reduce moose a little bit from seventeen sixteen hundred 1600 down to 1200. And that kept people happy for a while. And I said to myself, hey, instead of doing this willy-nilly, which is most Management doesn't have a question behind it. It's not really used as a scientific information piece. It's not used as adaptive management. Let's use the North Thompson as our reference area where we're not reducing moose. See how the caribou are doing there, and then see how compare that to the area where the moose are reduced. So again, we, the the social license did not exist to reduce wolves. The the local hunters wanted to access more moose, and the foresters said, whoa, they're destroying our plantations. This is having a real economic impact. So moose started being reduced. Then, there, then they were reduced more because there was an external review, and there was some science put out that I did that showed, ooh, historically, there were probably about 300 moose. You know, Brian Glacar is right. There probably always were some at Boat Encampment, but there were sure less moose than there were at their peak. And um, I presented a lot of this stuff to the Rod and Gun Club. They did not agree all the time, of course. Um, And then the caribou started doing better. The one herd has been stable since 2003, from 2003 to 2017. That was one of the most stable herds, if not the most stable herd in southern B.C., Other herds continued to decline, but they were very small when this experiment um, were put in place. The other thing that I didn't talk about much in that other presentation, Don, is that all this while the forest has been getting older and the moose habitat was declining. So in a way, we, and I mean the royal we, we were making hay while the sun was shining. In other words, the wolves and the aging forest would have reduced the moose anyway. But we took advantage of the harvestable surplus. So there was, there was a win-win. And then wolf reduction began in 2017. The calf numbers shot up. So recruitment shot up. We just finished the census. My colleagues just did the census Thursday through Sunday right here. And, and last fall, the moose, a lot of moose were taken a lot and people were worried. And we just counted them and the estimate's going to fall in somewhere between four and 500. So it's, it's basically stable, even though they were hammered because the wolf reduction was going on concurrently to save the caribou. So those are the things that happened. You had the moose reduction, then the wolf piece came in in 2017. Now, again, Brian pushed me on this, the guide outfitter. He's absolutely right. If we managed to 800 moose, and did wolf reduction for caribou, you'd have even more surplus. Absolutely. There's no arguing against that, but that creates more risk on the caribou side. We, As the moose population has crept back up from 300 to 530 in 2018, we've seen more wolves. They're back. Right. Um, and if the wolf reduction can't happen this year because of the lawsuit, there's going to be even more wolves come spring and summer. So keeping moose We no longer call it a reduction. It is now a stabilized, and nowhere in the province, to to be very clear, there is nowhere in the province now where moose reduction is being used for caribou on its own. That happened in two localized areas, Parsnip and Revelstoke, and in the rest of the province where there is a cow moose hunt, and I'm looking at the map now, it's just one hunt per management unit, just one tag per management unit such that only five cows were harvested from the lower Shuswap from the lower Okanagan, all the way up, um, you know, to the chase and Wolverine herds yep. um, way up in uh, yeah, in the Northwest. So um, those five cows are a trivial amount that's harvested. Now, should we remove those single cow tags for political reasons to calm people down? That would be a political move. It wouldn't do anything to improve the dire straits that moose are in outside outside caribou. So moose in Revelstoke are tending upwards. Moose in the piece will probably tend upwards. We're monitoring them very closely. There's a renewed effort for surveys in the piece and in the parsnip. The piece right now has a lot of wolf production, but not a single cow tag. So. That's where the adaptive management has to come in. If you're going to play these games, they're very surgical games. You need the money and the monitoring. So further to your earlier point in the episode, um, so we need to monitor the Moberly area, the Quintet area and the Clinziza Scott area to see if there's an uptick in moose because of this. Intensive wolf reduction. If we just let the moose erupt there willy nilly, we're creating a, a much worse problem in the long term for caribou.
0: Right. Okay. So how do you <clears throat> how do you rationalize how do you rationalize that to the person that just looks at this? The, the quick optics are yeah, but you're sacrificing you're sacrificing moose for the sake of caribou. My argument would be you know if I was it, when I've had this debate with somebody, it's like, okay, but you're talking about, you know, mountain caribou where there's like 1,500 maybe if you're lucky in the whole province. You know, we're not talking about, we're talking about, you know, 100,000 plus moose in the province. The consequence on moose is a lot less severe than it is on caribou if you are interested in keeping these caribou alive, right? Is that is that as simple yeah, as that's it a, is?
3: That's, um, that's one very good explanation, and it's that if you said, if you're interested, if society is interested in keeping caribou alive and sure we could play it off as oh moose versus caribou but actually particularly in the Revelstoke area it's managing the ecosystem a bit closer to what it used to be because pre-settlement there weren't many there were some moose for sure but not a ton not not 1.5 per square kilometre.
0: And is that, they were probably
3: 80% less. So, we're, to, to rephrase it, we're trying to manage the ecosystem for how it used to be, where the conditions, the forest age class, and the wildlife composition was more sustainable for caribou. And I, I just want to repeat, like nowhere are moose going to be reduced outside of these two pilot areas on their own just to save caribou. Right. Okay.
0: So, do you where else have you has adaptive management? What are the what are the keystones of adaptive management? Like, if you had to say, when we do it, it's these are the this is what goes into the model. What are the things that you 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 have to? What are the input values that, that come onto the land base with adaptive management when you're looking at it? What applied anywhere?
3: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So, it's a social and a scientific way of thinking. So. It's using management as an experiment to test an idea about how the system works. So you start off by getting information and you build a conceptual model about how the system works. So let's say for caribou, it would be trees, tree ages, and cutting to moose, to wolves, to caribou. And then you simulate, you say, you tell the computer to reduce the number of moose, and that would predict what would happen to wolves and caribou. But all the while, you tie that into a social system of management. So you have people continually involved in the process to understand and learn what the possible outcomes are. So that is your leading hypothesis, those arrows I pointed to, forest to moose to wolves to caribou. But then you could have a contrasting idea of how it would work. Mm, Maybe wolves aren't limiting caribou. Maybe it's food. So in another huge area, you would do some kind of food addition experiment. And you would model that first as well as model and try and predict the social consequences of doing that kind of thing. And it's the same with forestry. So you could cut back on forest harvesting. But again, you need to have the the social experts. So that includes decision makers, politicians um, in the room to evaluate what the consequences are to reducing your, your cut, your AAC. That is going to affect real jobs. So all that put together, the social part of it, the human part, and the wildlife science part goes together to predict two or three alternative outcomes, and then you go on the land and you do it. You do those trials using management as your lever. Not a small-scale petri dish, petri dish experiment, but you link in the managers from day one. And <clears throat> where it falls down all the time, in fact, in 98% of the case, cases it falls apart, is when you don't have the follow-up monitoring. You don't know what the outcome of that is. So we're doing all this habitat restoration. You know, HCTF is funding millions in habitat restoration. Well, we better be damn sure that there's the monitoring using cameras or whatever to figure out whether taking those roads offline actually does something for reducing wolf movement. And that's where we get lazy as a society. We forget to do that last piece. So adaptive management is like your favorite buzzword for everybody to sound fancy. But if you don't have that follow through, the boring part after, you're done. So
0: who, when 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 you apply it, and, or I guess when you applied it in these cases, are you doing study work afterwards? Is, is the, the lazy component, are you taking a look at what, what's happening in those areas? Po-
3: a lot of the times we we're not, but with this because it's caribou like I said Revelstoke for instance is spoiled. We're counting moose there every second year practically. So, yeah, in in some cases the 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 monitoring is going very well. Um in other cases no, we 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 have a shortage of funding to monitor the key ecosystem components, the the Habitat change, the moose response to the wolf removal, um, and the caribou response, also, you know, that's not bad. But if we miss the primary prey piece, which is so important to so many constituents, if we ignore that, because if you don't get a bump in primary prey because of the wolf removal for whatever reason, and that does happen, it's not automatic, <clears throat> don't go out and put out a whole bunch of female tags, you know, on on does and cows. So you need to monitor that part surgically to get buy-in from the public and to understand that ecosystem, or else there's something you're missing. And we miss stuff all the time.
0: Well, and one of the things that I read in, in just one of the briefs was that, I mean, in some cases, there are you have to reduce some of those, you have to take action on some of the limiting factors in advance. Is that, is that the dealing with wolves? if I got to put in maternal panning by itself, but I don't deal with the predators that might compromise that, is is that how those two things uh, stay coupled?
3: Yeah, you probably want to pull both those levers at the same time to get your biggest bang for buck. Um, <clears throat> although, you know, we are talking a lot about the, the top-down piece, like panning and wolves, but we also want to stress the habitat piece, right? Like, th- the, despite the... COSEWIC the committee on the status for endangered wildlife in Canada despite the endangered listing of the southern group of southern mountain caribou despite the recovery plans we still have uh, you know more forest loss than forest gain in most of the herds so um that's the underlying problem um but yeah you hit the nail on the head like if if you want to get your biggest bang for buck, you want to do some penning predator management at the same time, and probably that primary prey stabilization so you you don't get an eruption and that's where you get those little glimmers of win win
0: so i get i guess in the overarching piece of this um habitat recovery is part of it, but that's a that that game plays out over decades there's no short term there's no real short-term remedy for for repairing habitat. is there?
3: That's right. Even restoration will never be done on the scale and won't grow back fast enough. You can rip out that road and plant the trees, but they're not you know it'll take decades for even for that really active restoration, and across ninety nine percent of the land base that's been harvested, um, you've got to let those trees grow back. And so you've got this 30 year lag where you're still, <clears throat> yeah, where it's still not great for caribou. It's really bad. Um, and there's still a lot of moose food being produced. So absolutely, because we manage for resource extraction, you got to manage the wildlife side. So you, you, if caribou, like you said, if caribou are part of the equation, um, there's no other choice than to do the predator management in the interim it's a band-aid it's an emergency measure however i will say just like i found that the public has become more supportive of those um, unfortunate actions when you protect habitat concurrently simultaneously if you let that piece slip away and just use um wolf reductions and as and penning as an excuse to keep off the removal of forest, well, then you're going to lose public support, and what, then there's a whole ethical issue behind all that too. Would you
0: take a look at um, adaptive management? How is it how is it perceived by your peers, and not just as a not just adaptive management, set, but if we look at managing managing making management decisions that involves uh, you know killing wolves? I mean, that's been part of the 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 application that you. That you've had your success with. So, how do your peers take that? There must be people within the scientific community that, that look at that and go, "Like, you guys are way off base. You shouldn't be doing that. There's another way to do that. You know, you should uh, relocate them, or um, you know, t- take that out of the mix." So, how do you respond to um, to because I, I would assume that that's got to be if anybody's going to be critical of every, of anything. Um, you know, other than maybe industry being critical that, you know, you're impacting their ability to make a living in in some cases, if you're recommending a moratorium or something, but, um, how do you deal with that piece or, or, or does it happen or, or is it widely accepted in the scientific community that adaptive management is a, is a great framework and a, and, and a great modeling process?
3: Oh, yeah, I mean, adaptive management is accepted um by and large uh, we do get challenged there's two ways to get challenged one on the ethical side it's just not ethical to kill predators um, and that's not a scientific question that's a that's an opinion ethical issue um, although there are ways there are ways to challenge ethics in a variety of ways, like you know it's accepted to Kill a cougar if it comes into your interface community and and takes your pet, right? That's a no brainer. The co comes and removes the cougar, right? Um, on, and then occasionally we do get ch- challenged on the science piece, as um, happened last summer, and we are putting together a big counter to that piece. And um, and we found many flaws in the science that attacked us. So. Um, the null model of penning and predator control, uh, the, the, the model of penning and predator control beats the null by by a lot. Um, when you combine those two as an isolated effect, it beats the do-nothing model, let's say, the control model right. of do-nothing. And then in the backdrop to all that, eight herds went extinct during our study that were untreated, kind of like what you were getting at. Eight caribou herds over that 20-year period when extinct, and we didn't put those into the statistics because we just thought it was obvious, like caribou, <laughs> untreated caribou herds are declining everywhere. So you can make a statistical argument all you want, but common sense has to prevail. And, um, but by and large, yeah, we see in the scientific community, uh, support for the model you presented, including the targeted, um, you know, predator management.
0: Any Anything from you guys? Go ahead. <laughs> N- nothing,
1: nothing that uh, we, we haven't debated before. It's, it's, it's great to hear somebody that's uh, got some authority behind it that people might actually mm-hmm. go, hey, wait a minute. That's what these guys were saying. It's, it's not a bad thing when you harvest cows when there's a sustainable population. It's not a bad thing when you harvest calves when there's a sustainable population. Sometimes it's needed to take out wolves without replacing habitat is counter effective. It's it's refreshing, and I'm, I'm I'm loving just sitting back listening.
0: Yeah, you know what, Steve, I gotta agree with you. It is really nice to hear somebody smarter than you guys talk about this. Stuff. <laughs> 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 just a, so, but on that piece, um, and, and this is kind of where I guess there's two sides to this the, this debate a little bit. But the the biggest part of this that that I that I not not struggle with, but I, I'm curious from from your perspective. There was a lot of backlash as we focused on what ostensibly came down to an increase of eleven
1: tags, forty-seven with yeah forty-seven harvest rates.
0: You're yep, looking at about but like eleven, 11 or uh, yeah, yeah the yeah. potential for eleven to twelve moose being taken in in a, in a specific area. But I I kind of felt like what came out of that is people heard um, cows, calves, increased harvest. And then they, that's what they heard, but they applied that across a broad, the the whole province. It's like, you know, these, these guys in this adaptive management thing, they're just, they're killing wolves and they're, they're letting everybody do moose. And if I'm the anti hunting and I want to protect wolves, I heard they're endorsing killing wolves. That can't be very good science. And if I'm a hunter, I'm like, what are you guys doing? Killing cows and calves. It doesn't make any sense. And then the same people, if we go just to the hunting community, and I and I don't, I, and I've been one of these people, so I'm, you know, I, I I've been this person. They are they're the same people that say, no, no, we need science to manage wildlife. We need to. It's one of the it, it's one of the constituent pieces of the North American wildlife model. Is that it needs to be um, it needs to be science driven. It needs to be uh, all of the decisions have to have a derivative in science. So when we apply science in an area, and 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 Rob, you made a it's it's a pretty simple, straightforward argument for hey, listen, it, it it worked in this particular area, and when we didn't do it in the other ones, apparently there's no more caribou. That's a pretty good argument, right? But then when we say, then you apply that to another species, and they're like, yeah, we don't wait like your, wait, yeah, <laughs> I don't like the science on the on that cow calf yeah. thing you were doing, but hey, on the grizzly bear thing. Uh, We need science over here to get the grizzly bear back. I don't really care what you're doing over there. That science isn't the science I want. As a scientist, does that frustrate you and wildlife managers (laughs) when we we as a community, as a consumptive user group, say, hey, like, I mean, I know industry would do it, but just if I just speak as a hunter, because I've been this guy um, bitching that I don't like the science, but the science is right in front of you.
3: Well, that's, that's a tough one. And I mean, I'm sure Mike has to deal with this all the time as a decision maker. I mean, he's got to work, Mike, you've got to work at the interface between politics and science all the time. So yeah, I mean,
2: that's why I enjoy good BC wine.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. Sure. Like I say, in some ways, my job is easy. Mike's got the hard job. He's got to do the trade-offs. Um, and Mike, you can comment on that. But,
2: <laughs> yeah, um, You know, it, it is difficult trying to find that and trying to to get the message through to other decision-makers in the province. And you hit the nail on the head when you first started speaking about the urbanization of our province. That's a major factor in the decision-making process at the political level um, and at the senior bureaucratic level as well. Do you have... 65% 65% of our population living on 0.53% of the landmass in the lower mainland. Wow. Um, they make the wow. decisions for us and and so that that's been my biggest challenge uh, in the years I've been in politics is to try and get the message out to the other um the other colleagues uh, political folks uh, in the province here that are primarily in the populated areas. So um I get frustrated sometimes but you just have to keep on Put it into low gear and just keep on pushing, and finally that message will be inculcated into the minds of other decision makers, and we'll get to where we want to go. We'll get that balance right. Yeah, we're the the balance balance for it. For it. Yeah, that's yes. right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, like with shows like this. I mean, no, Don, for sure. We like to. We're all guilty of this. We like to pick and choose our science when it agrees with our preconceived values.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> our own yeah, confirmation a bias.
3: A confirmation bias. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah, if I'm a grizzly bear hunter, I love to pull out the science that from the you know the the high quality government ministry science that's published in Journal of Wildlife Management, the grizzly bear hunt was largely sustainable. Uh, it was sustainable, even though most bears end up being killed by humans. That level of harvest was sustainable. You know, and it's pretty clear. So I can argue that on the one side, and then on the other side, it's like, oh, I want to use my emotion now and ignore the science that says we can actually have extra cows and calves hunted while we're doing some um, wolf reduction. And, by the way, that can benefit terrible at the same time. Yeah. No, I don't like that, even if the science says that might just work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so totally. I get your point there, Don, and it's it's fun to point that out and maybe, you know, have – have people reflect on that while they're drinking their BC wine or having that cocaine.
0: <laughs> well, I, I would tell you that the, when I first read that soundbite, because Steve, Steve's actually the one that reined me in. Like Steve's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, Cause I went off the deep end with oh, Steve. Yeah, he did. When I heard about that. And Steve's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, Let me just tell you how many, it's not across the province. Then Steve kind of said, okay, well this, this is what they're talking about. And uh, then I had another glass of BC wine and uh, thought, okay, well maybe I'll look into this a little bit. And then, it was a couple of days later. You did your presentation. I was like, okay, I'm on the other side of it. So then I had wine for a di- <laughs> well, yeah. Then I had wine well, for a well, different.
3: You, <laughs> you can convince one person then in one presentation. Well, that's better than zero, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I <laughs> I love podcasts because there's four of us or five of us on here, and I've I've learned from every one of you. So there's five. I love podcasts, but in this one instance, I wish I could show the map. Because the map shows that the two areas where there's a lot of cow tags out there are very small oh, for yeah, the absolutely. whole province. Absolutely, they're they are. teeny. And I'm sure there's somewhere someone could download the map. Like have your listeners reach out to you, and then they could reach out to me. Um, if you can to get it, the map, if like you can it, get us
0: that map, we actually have our own website, and we can we can post that right up in our opinion piece um and we could support yeah. it right with the document so uh, yeah, like, if you have that we'd love to make yeah, it like, available harvest,
1: harvest rates would have said maybe 11 or 12 taken out of this total area and people were just up in was arms. no the yeah uh, the, so, the, the, the w- call area if we want to call it that so with right? the what, what oh, happened yeah. what
0: happened in the parsnip though by just by contrast uh
3: what, what, oh, yeah what, it it did not help caribou in the parsnip but also moose were only lightly reduced they were reduced by about 40% from their maximum. In Revy, the moose were reduced down to 83% of their maximum. So like all this adaptive management piece, whatever you do, you have to pull the lever hard. And I got hammered by this after the media got some sound bites on me by by some groups that said, oh, this guy says just kill wolves and kill all of them. And that's not at all what I said it's if you're going to do something you go hard or you go home but that's with everything protect the habitat protection hard um if you lightly dabble in the wolf piece you will make matters worse and it's unethical to the wolves
0: right so so can, it, so can you can can you contextualize that around i mean if you're there's a couple of things fecundity for for predators is probably something of of note because I mean I think people sometimes oh, yeah. forget that piece because they re- the in areas where they've they 've done extensive work they 're usually trying to target what eighty percent reduction in in a wolf population, but their capacity unlike ungulates um to rebound is significant. The other thing I think that was interesting. And I read in your study was the fecundity of moose versus caribou. It takes a lot longer for caribou to recover their population than moose do. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's why caribou are the victim of this predator-prey imbalance, and moose aren't. Moose support the primary. Moose support the predators. Um, and um, to the wolf point, yeah. I mean, I got into biology for wolves. I love wolves. I subscribed to all those wolf protection magazines when I was a kid. Like I, you know, when I was nine, 10, 11, I bought my own subscription to wolf news, right? Those advocacy groups. And, and it's good that they're there. Absolutely. We need to think about conservation Absolutely. all the time for everything. Absolutely. Um But in Alberta, the strongest study out there in the world on the wolf piece is this trapping study from Alberta. And they showed very clearly you could remove every yeah. year thirty-three percent of the wolf population, and what does that do to your wolf population? Nothing at all. Nothing. Yep. It's flat. It's so bad. you can't do that to any ungulate. They'd be extirpated within five years, right? Right. You take out a third of your of your females, um, so wolves rebound very quickly. Um, Again, though, if you only do wolf control and don't protect habitat, well, that's
0: You're not
1: doing that's anything.
3: unethical. You're not doing anything, yeah.
0: So what if we just – we're going to get kind of to a close here, But I, and I just wanted to end on a couple of points. If you look at the province, we spend a lot of time picking on everything that we've done wrong as a province. Um, this is an example of an experiment that I think has proved that it can bear fruit. But as a province, what do you think – like what's your – what do you think we're doing well as a province? From a wildlife management standpoint, and I do not envy their role um, because uh, I don't think that they have all the tools in the toolbox. Um, I use this analogy once. I kind of feel, you know, resource... We want a return on our, our investment as a resource. As, as all of these... Uh, the wildlife, to me, particularly on the, on the consumptive side, all of those game species is like a resource that you want... Uh, we want to be able to, to harvest the surplus. So you've, you've got these people that are like, a fun, they're, they're like your fund manager as wildlife managers. Like, okay, here's the investment. It's in a public trust. Look after this and grow some wildlife, right? Grow some wildlife because we're going to scrape off just the excess. The problem is, is it's like you've got somebody managing your portfolio, and all they've been allowed to do is just take the initial investment. I can't sell anything, right? And I can't go buy any new stocks. I can only just kind of watch what happens, that's it. I can't. I can't. I could just watch the principle, and it, it, it. That's what it feels like sometimes. Like it's like, yeah, I can't make any good trades. That's uh, a great I can Yeah, I can't really make any good trades. And I well, wish we could have. You know, there's a we could have. We could have sold high, but we can't. And uh, there's a real good stock, but I had to let that one go. That's how I feel. I feel bad for wildlife managers because that's how I feel. They've got. We've got a whole province that demands. Um, whether they're consumptive or non-consumptive users, we want more, and we all do, because we, we know the model is based on harvesting a surplus. But it's tough for them to get to a surplus because they have people on, both, you know, on multiple sides pushing at them. Hunters that want more of this, um, and there's a there's indigenous people that that have a, a legal right to, to have uh, a, a certain amount of consumption, and trappers that want some, and then people in the lower mainland that just want to know some are there, and then people in the lower mainland that don't want you to do anything with them. They just want to let nature be what it is, and they have to respond to all that social input, all that economic impact from forestry and and mining, and stuff to say, hey, listen, don't piss in our playground, right? Like, you're, you're playing around with our livelihood. There's a lot of things that they have to do. It's hard for... For them to, to to go to work every day and then come up with a net result that satisfies everybody, um, and then and then the best part is they're the people that we throw out. We throw them to the virtual lions all the time. Like it's it's the fa- it's the fault of the wildlife managers. They're idiots. They don't know what they're doing. I hear that all the time. It's like, dude, they're like they're they're playing the game with both hands tied behind them. They they can't change the policy. All they can do is witness it. I've said it a zillion times. It feels like we've been paid them. We're paying them to either witness a decline or watch it stay in, 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 in a, in a per- permanent state of, of, of flux, but not do anything meaningful. Um, that's my own observation. So, anyway. <laughs> just a little bit of one.
1: How do you, how do you feel about
2: <laughs> that? Yeah.
3: Well, at the beginning of your question, you asked. Um, you know, what What are things we're doing well as a province? And I tried to stress that throughout this whole episode, you know, there's, there's some very quick responses to, to, um, changing wildlife populations. Like I said, with moose management, there's some quick responses. They've hired a lot of new young guns with, um, really good math skills who also get out and hunt. So, you know, those are, those are some real glimmers of hope that are going on. Um, so, like you said, um, the regional folks are doing everything they can um, with the limited tools they have to quickly integrate new information. And I see it happen all the time. I have these calls with them every six weeks. Every wildlife manager is on is on a call that I chair and they're constantly adaptively managing. Um, and the other n- provinces and, and the, the nation are trying to emulate what we're doing here. So that's on the plus side. On the minus side, yeah, the individual regional folks who make difficult decisions on things like cow moose are, in some ways being left hung out to dry. Um, that should be oh see, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but <laughs> yeah that should, that should be coordinated through a provincial strategy through Victoria a bit more, so the individuals in the trenches aren't being left hung out to dry with some of the more controversial decisions, right um. And I think think that's a provincially led policy rather than one person in Fort St. John saying, "Um, maybe can we kind of put out a couple cow tags while we're killing wolves? You know, like they're just being hung out to dry. They need to um, really incorporate and finally start to appreciate, you know, first nations values and how, um, how those might be appreciated in the whole notion of, primary prey and predator management, um, like the great model with the the Clinziza herd, with the Soto and the West Moberly. Um, And I guess we need to amp up the stuff I said earlier in Idaho, where there's a better integration of the bottom-up habitat processes through um, better information on Yeah, on the food resources for wildlife and incorporating those into the the tools we use to set harvest quotas. And again, Idaho has these chairs that are funded by the Pittman-Robertson Act. They sit at the university, but they answer to the agency. We have nothing like that in BC, wildlife chairs.
0: So the last... Okay, so a a lot of what you're talking about, though, will come back to, we need some more money to do it well. You, You need more people? You, you you need more people. You probably need to be able to access technology. Um, the other things that I heard throughout the presentation would be um, we need to be able to go back and count probably in, in 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 quicker cycles than waiting every seven or eight years. We do that only be, as a function of what we can afford, not because a function of what's necessary. Um, and a lot of our problems come with the 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 province. I would suggest it from what I'm hearing is is making a concerted effort and making a willful decision to apply more resources to managing these wild resources and giving uh, wildlife managers people charged with growing wildlife not just watching wildlife um giving them the tools that they need to do that because right now it the the only the only real lever that they have and i don't know that if, if that's true in every jurisdiction in north america but i i would suggest that most people should have more at their disposal than just hunting regulations to to control the ebb and flow of wildlife populations because there's way more to it than that right
3: yeah for sure and you you reminded me of a point i wanted to make earlier when when you were bringing up your main questions we and it and it and it likens back to that uh steven comment we put out we do a lot of studies in areas where there's a lot of human impacts Caribou herds in northern bc are doing really well there are some very healthy herds up in the Cotti, and um, yeah, there's some, you know, there, there's some herds doing quite well, and I know that the Smithers group have just put out a whole bunch of radio callers on caribou in those areas, uh, the Smithers biologists, so I'm glad to see that, but we understudy our herds for all wildlife that are doing well, because how can you learn when they're doing poorly without the context and the reference point of where they're also doing well? Right. So if we could siphon off 10% of the funding to the herds in the northern part of the province that, you know, border with Yukon, um, that would go a long way for elk and caribou management. Awesome. Anything else that you
0: think, um, anything else you want to add or end on? A final thought?
3: Habitat. No, that's it. The key to these things, caribou management conservation is habitat for sure. That's it. I really appreciate it. Speaking with all of you and yeah, meeting you all and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a great, a great, fulfilling for me anyway. A great podcast.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for spending some time with us, Rob. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. What are you working on right now? By the way, you said you were calling white-tailed deer. That's the that's the program right now.
3: Yeah, we got some white-tailed deer calling, and then we're doing a big analysis of caribou population trends uh, in the southern part of the province on the southern mountain group. That's taken up most of my time. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll look forward to yeah. uh, hopefully future conversations with you. Thanks again uh, for spending some time with us. Take care, my friend. Cheers. Take Thanks care, very much,
1: everybody. Thanks, Rob. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, that's it. That is another episode of the Cut Banks
2: Conversation. Final thoughts, guys? Very knowledgeable guy. I enjoyed listening to him.
0: Yeah, I don't
1: think there's much to add. No, that, had, was, that was really good. He, he that hit all the good. bases that uh, we've talked about and... It's it's great, and I love the fact that he stressed habitat, habitat,
2: habitat, habitat, habitat.
0: and where, whatever they're doing in Idaho. That that precept Predictor, uh, that's the kind of whiz bang you know, kit that we we absolutely need. So <laughs> oh yeah, so so now I got to ask this question because you said on one of the you wanted to hear what he said to see if it sounded interesting.
2: Now that you've heard him, how do you feel about what he had to add? Uh, I agree.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: no but i i do it you know and and i was leaning in the direction that you were in before yeah. you know in that position and uh, uh but after listening to you and steve talk over the last few months and uh, then listening to rob just now i'm convinced that uh, that was the right direction to go
0: no that's super good so um let us uh, say thanks. Thanks for everybody for spending some time with us. Uh, hope you guys really enjoyed uh, this episode. Thanks to Rob Seruia for spending some time. We really appreciate it. We all learned a ton. And uh, we have got a couple of great episodes coming up. We've got the CO service coming in to see us. Absolutely, we uh, do. We've got a really interesting episode with uh, my brother, John, who just su- uh, uh, celebrated five years of sobriety. Chris Beckley and Taylor Barber, who actually worked for me. Uh, also uh, in their five and two year sobriety and guys that have used hunting as healing as part of their uh, recovery from addiction. So Steve and I will be sitting down with them next week to, to have a chat and then look for Dr. Ryan McDonald and cumulative effects framework management. And Mike, Steve and I will be back. So on behalf of Mike Morris, Maddie Wakeham, Steve Hamilton and Discount D, thanks for listening to the Cut Banks Conversation.